Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Edmund White. No, that's fine. That's good. Okay. Um, so, uh, the main character in this uh, book, uh, other than me, is um, Marie-Claude de Brunhoff, who was the ex-wife of the man who did Babar the Elephant. And uh, she was like my biggest pal there. And when I, I knew her before I went to Paris, she introduced me to everybody in Paris. And then she died like, uh, about the time that I left. So uh, anyway, it was sort of like a complete uh, cycle there. Marie-Claude would invite new French novelists or philosophers of the moment to dinner. And these young men from the provinces, who now taught in Paris high schools and lived with women in the 20th arrondissement, would appear intimidated, but also puzzled and surprised by what they were encountering. Who was this aging American fag, barely able to speak French? Here was this slender woman in her 60s with her short pearly gray hair, the floating uh, ecru and beige panels of her layered Japanese clothes, her lacquered red shoes, her ivory cigarette holder, her slightly weary graciousness, offering them some of her famous tapenade on toast, famous like all the rituals of this woman's life, at least to the faithful. She was perhaps most famous for her low, smoky voice, though in fact it was someone else's, Jean Moreau's. On the phone, MC was often mistaken for Jean Moreau and immediately put through, an era she relished. One of my naive girlfriends from the gym thought Marie-Claude couldn't possibly be French. Is she English? German? I wondered what sounded foreign, her timbre, her articulation, her slow speech. When she was diagnosed with cancer the first time, she did consider giving up smoking, but her doctor assured her that stopping would be too much of a shock to her system. Another friend, <laughs> another friend thought uh, stopping would also be ill-advised because it would destroy her lovely, distinctive speaking voice. To me, Marie-Claude seemed completely continental. She even had a very European way of being tired. She would say, but we're all terribly tired. Everyone is worn out. <laughs> it, it wasn't quite clear if she meant that the troubled politics of recent weeks had exhausted everyone, or whether 
In these impoverished latter days, everyone we knew had to work like coal miners to stay afloat. I knew that if in my empirical Anglo-Saxon way I proffered these possibilities of what she meant by general weariness, since in English we crave examples, Mary Claude would vaguely reject them saying, no, no, c'est pas ça. Without elaborating on what she meant, everyone is terribly, terribly tired, she'd say. <laughs> I found that the French I found that the French rarely descended to the indignity of an example. They couldn't they couldn't think with them and we couldn't think without them. Uh, then I, I was talking about how Diane Johnson, who wrote Le Divorce and Le Mariage and all these things that were made into movies too, uh, she and I were kind of good expat pals and we both learned so much from Mary Claude. Sometimes we laughed at Mary Claude's an announcement, not infrequent, that everyone was exhausted. How could everyone be exhausted at the same time, Diane asked, with her infectious laugh bubbling just below her speech and sometimes drowning it. And besides, in America, if we're tired, we take a nap, don't we? Or we have a good night's sleep, don't we? And then we wake up refreshed, right? We don't have this condition, do we? This extended condition of being weary. At least I never heard of it back in Illinois. <laughs> and yet it seemed like an odd peccadillo, uh, and yet it, yet it seemed like an odd peccadillo of married clothes until I read in Theodore Zeldin's book, The French, that most French people claim to be exhausted. Uh, if we laughed at two or three of Mary Claude's foibles, we did so because we adored her otherwise. She was our point man for understanding all things French. In her novels Le Divorce, Le Mariage, and L'Affaire, Diane dealt with the sometimes calamitous encounter between French and American laws, customs, and attitudes, and language. Mary Claude understood all these fine points of her own culture, partly because she was a French-born Jew who had been raised in Mexico. She knew every out-of-the-way French expression and took a connoisseur's delight in them. I remember she gave me a book of, of French slang, you know, and then she would find ancient French words, another dictionary, and uh, she was always giving me dictionaries. She knew every out-of-the-way French spell uh, here. Her father, a watchmaker named Bloch, had had the means and the wit to move his entire Jewish family, his wife, his two daughters, his mother-in-law, and her sister, from France in 1941 to Mexico City, where the girls were enrolled in French schools, Mexico City. There, the whole family survived the war, and there Mary Claude had not only learned Spanish, but American, as she called it. Uh, she had met American soldiers and dated them on the sly when she was just 15 or 16, learning their slang. She made some little mistakes in English, but was so at ease in all three of her languages that if I complained that I was tired and couldn't go on speaking French anymore that night, she'd blink and say, but I thought we were speaking English. I'm sorry. Finally, after I'd been in France for a year and a half, she and I began switching from one language to the other without transition and in mid-sentence. Harry Matthews, who had lived in France since the 1950s, would get irritated with us. Either French or English, not both, please. If you keep that up, Ed, you'll lose your English without gaining French. 
somehow gaining French didn't sound right. And he walked off with the quizzical expression on his face. I began, I began to claim that uh, trying to understand all those intellectuals whom Mary Claude would invite to her dinner parties with their qualifications and parentheses had made me appreciate simple declarative sentences of the subject verb object variety. The second book I wrote while living in France, The Beautiful Room is Empty, was my most American, the leanest, cleanest prose I'd ever written, and without a single French expression in it. It was my sequel to A Boy's Own Story. Um, there were constant pitfalls in shifting from French to English. For instance, the French would say, we passed a very funny evening with her, when what they meant was a fun evening. They, they spent a fun evening. Or they'd say, he's an excellent cooker, which to some English language ears makes the subject sound like a stove. <laughs> or, they, or they'd say, I know her since forever. There were lots of faux amis going back and forth. Malicieux means sly, not malicious. Actuel in French means present and isn't used in our sense of actual. Henry James, who'd been educated in French, would refer to the actual president of the United States. I mean, he'd make that mistake. At her dinner parties, Mary Claude's husband, Laurent, would sit at the table with a look of terminal boredom. As the French would say, Il est empaillé dans le coin. He's stuffed in the corner as a taxidermist bear or antelope is stuffed. Laurent made no attempt to hide it. His boredom was a form of narcolepsy he was always about to sink into. An onlooker might have guessed he was the one who didn't understand French. For after all, it's impossible to look alert for long if no message is getting through. On his own, Laurent was a lively, playful gentleman who liked to joke and whose eyes danced with merriment as he clowned around. He loved being a teaser, but at Mary Claude's state dinners for all these writers and intellectuals, he appeared no more engaged than Prince Philip at royal events and a good deal less willing to go through the motions. He was very, very slender and carried not an extra ounce of fat on his body. Though he was already in his 60s when I met him, he was still taking yoga classes every morning. He and Harry Matthews both wore vests sewn with large pockets for pens and pencils that they bought at Hollington, a store near the Odeon. The vests were very well made, built to last in a plain, durable-looking fabric with subdued colors. Artisan chic, you might have said. Laurent had a narrow, tall, gothic face lengthened further by his bald head. Even his baldness, like Nabokov's, was distinguished, as if an excess of genetic refinement had banished everything hirsute. His unusual last name, de Brunhoff, with the aristocratic particule, could be traced back to Swedish ancestors. One of the female antecedents had been a Swedish king's mistress. Uh, although Laurent scoffed at such a claim and waved an impatient hand at it, I can still picture a nearly extinct Laurent, gray with ennui, wedged behind the round table between two vociferous gesticulating writers. No one ever asked him anything other than to pass the grated cheese. <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
him. <laughs> Mary Claude's apartment was large by Paris standards, but small by those of any other city. She had four modest-sized rooms. One in the back was for her daughter, Anne, a space I never saw even uh, by accident in my 25 years of visiting there. Uh, the other one in the back was Laurent's studio. The two larger rooms in the front were the public rooms. The sitting room, dining room, had two couches forming an L, big sunny French doors surrounded by plants and looking down on the Boulevard Saint-Germain, and lots of exquisite shells and carved objects on the white mar <coughs> marble mantel above the fireplace. On one wall was a small painting of a curious little man in an improbable flying machine, and another small painting of superimposed tinted papers that looked Japanese, and had in fact been bought at a Japanese art gallery on the Place des Vosges. Marie-Claude loved the Japanese aesthetic and for years had studied the language. She had a computer that gave her Japanese and Chinese characters. She was friendly with Madame Tsushima, the daughter of the Japanese novelist Ozama Dazai, who wrote the book No Longer Human, and, uh, and with the man who translated part of the tale of Genji into French. There were very few things he, uh, here or in her perfect little summer house on the Ile de Ré off the Atlantic coast, but each object felt talismanic. I gave her a few expensive gifts that seemed to me to conform to her taste, but after presenting them to her, I'd never see them again. <laughs> Whenever I went to Mary Claude's uh, place in Paris for dinner, and I went hundreds of times, uh, everything followed a ritual. I arrived at 8.30, and she was impeccably dressed in one of her pale flowing skirts and layered uh, uh, tops, her body slight, lightly perfumed with honeysuckle, always the same, that was her perfume, honeysuckle. Uh, when a woman always wears the same perfume, she does so to please the people around her, not herself. Uh, Honeysuckle, say, is her brand, whereas on her own she might like to vary her scents. Because I arrived before everyone else, she usually invited me to go upstairs to her tiny studio in a maid's room to visit the, her latest Cornell-type boxes, though it was impolite to mention Cornell to her, and there, and there I could see what use she'd made of the... Of the uh, of the model pillars I'd brought back from the gift shop in the Roman form, the Fatima hand from Cairo, the 10 ex voto of a soldier in World War I uniform, which I'd found in Greece. Uh, she decided to call her boxes immobile theaters, Théâtre Immobile, in an upcoming gallery show for which I wrote the catalog essay, pretending to be Cocteau so I could turn out the glib, poetic words. Later, <laughs> downstairs the other guests had started arriving and MC would serve them red wine. The French never seemed to drink anything else except red wine and homemade tapenade on little squares of toast. Around 10 o'clock her shy, mannish, 
but beautiful daughter, Anne, would come in and help her mother pull the round table out from the wall, remove the towering flower arrangement, and set the table. The meal began with traditional bourgeois fare, like a beet salad or stewed leeks or eggs cooked in red wine. But the second course was often a horrible surprise, one of Mary Claude's famous inventions, like chicken and a peanut butter and creme fraiche sauce. <laughs> which she called a la circassian, circassian style for some reason. Whereas she was uh, an unreservedly excellent cook at her summer house on the Ile de Ray. Simple fresh fish and fresh salads and vegetables and fruits. In Paris she could be too original in the foreboding French sense of that word. <laughs> Well, I'm a non-drinker, but everybody else drank plenty. Of course, the wines flowed freely for everyone but me. And in any event, people were too busy competing for airtime to notice what they were eating. Mary Claude might, uh, often Mary Claude tried to mix people who didn't really know each other. She wasn't the sort of managing, aggressive hostess who can draw people out and chatter confidently. She was really very shy. Uh, with, except with close friends. So there were many silences, or as the French say, an angel is passing, an ange passe. When, with friends, especially on the phone, she loved to recount every detail of her life, often styled as battles she was fighting to protect the rights of her children. Uh, to the degree that she was a fashion plate and frivolous, Anne, her daughter, was imposing in her khakis and Brooks Brothers men's shirts. <laughs> Laurent, Mary Claude's husband, had a brother named Thierry. Thierry had been a successful concert pianist, a piano teacher for society women, and the lover of the Mahler biographer, Henri du Louis de Lagrange, who had inherited millions of dollars from his rich American mother. One day Thierry threw it all over and became a monk. Worried that he'd commit the sin of aestheticism, he chose the most ugly modern cement monastery and only reluctantly did he accept his abbot's money-making scheme of recording a monastery choir singing Gregorian chants. At the end of his two-year Novitiate, Thierry's abbot gave him a lawn party to celebrate taking holy orders where every other guest was the duchess and her lunch companion a smelly, toothless monk. <laughs> Thierry, in his zeal, found monastic life too worldly and easy, and he became a hermit in a cave in the Pyrenees. He was looked after by nuns in a nearby convent who prepared his austere meals. He rose at 4 a.m. and began the day kneeling on stone and praying for several hours. From time to time, he would come to Paris for a few days to see his mother, a former piano teacher, his other brother, the doctor, and then Marie-Claude and Anne. He stayed with Marie-Claude. In Paris, he wore normal clothes, often slack shirts and a warm-down jacket He'd, he bought at Le Vieux Campeur, the vast sportswear emporium. Thierry was cheerful and a good listener to Mary claudes rants about her battles to protect the world 
worldwide uh, Babar merchandising revenues from Laurent's new wife. Uh, in France, by Napoleonic law, Laurent would not be able to disinherit his middle-aged children. But I pointed out to Mary Claude that now that her husband was an American citizen living in America. He could leave everything to his cat if he wanted to. Mary Claude went on red alert when La Dame, that's what we called her, La Dame Sans Merci, La Dame dared to write a book in which she mentioned her friendship with Thierry the monk. Oh no, this time she's gone too far. Her book will never be published in France. I'll make sure of it. Uh, after dinner, her guests would leave directly from the table, full of promises to see each other very, very soon, or else they would retire to the adjoining library, secretly Mary Claude's bedroom. But her guests, uh, uh, but for, for her guests, it was a second salon, the bed camouflaged by a red cover and a heap of black and gold pillows. There, people half reclined and drank an herbal tea, a tisane. Mary Claude prided herself on the teal mont, a lime flower mint blend she bought in a monastery shop on the Rue Pont Louis Philippe. And I wondered if I had to stay till the very end as a sort of man of the house. Many French people were difficult conversationalists, asking them not only where they were originally from, but what they did in life was considered rude. I suppose because many of them did nothing. Many, Pari <laughs> many Parisians are rentiers, people who live off the rents of their properties, or because they weren't proud of their jobs, which simultaneously supported and interfered with their intellectual and artistic passions. They did away that did away with the two, uh, top two American conversation openers. Uh, uh, you know, where are you from and what do you do? Um, <laughs> Americans aren't usually quite so paranoid, but the French are constantly alert to the possibility of a real or imagined slight. And being able to put someone down, even a complete stranger, is considered an admirable gift. <laughs> that leaves the movies as a safe topic. Uh, a chatty but pointless anecdote designed to fill a silence. And so we got completely lost around Vendôme. Can elicit an ELR, which depending on how it's pronounced can mean then what, or so what, or why are you telling me that? Whereas Americans like to match anecdotes, the French at least try to make a general point. All the stories in Proust move from the specific to the general. Not only are the French, who are so protective of their family's reputations, mystified by childhood horror stories and confessions. You know how like everybody in America says, oh, my parents beat me and my father raped me and all that. But, uh, you know, in France you never say things like that. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> And the more sophisticated and international French people are, the more raw their stories can seem. I mean, like Ameri they said that Americans talk about, uh, uh, they talk about money so they won't have to talk about sex, and the French talk about sex so they won't have to talk about money, because that's the real secret. Oh. Even, uh, 
everybody likes to swear. It's a sign of Parisianism to talk dirty. And it's proof that no matter how titled and aristocratic you are, in the 1960s, you mounted the barricades and joined the student rebellions. Even the most resplendent countess can talk slang like a sailor. Some of a shia, literally meaning that makes me shit, uh, a, not, <laughs> a not necessarily racy way of saying how annoying. Or a bejeweled hostess might say something is con, literally cunt, but figuratively stupid. <laughs> a child who is shy and won't come out to meet guests is called half-admiringly sauvage, which means shy, but literally, of course, wild or savage. I once heard a very presentable French mother speaking faulty English and shocking the matrons of Houston. My daughter is wild, very wild, she said, when the girl refused to curtsy. On, on the other hand, French children are brought up to kiss all the guests goodnight, even complete strangers, a touching, delicious custom when the child is a pretty, freshly bathed little girl. While English speakers feel some team effort is necessary to keep a conversation going, the French don't mind if it founders completely. With friends, they might make an effort, but not with relative strangers, in case their loquaciousness might give some, uh, some covertly hostile person the upper hand. Information can be used as a weapon, and hostility is the default position. And too much laughing or, or whooping is considered vulgar. All of which is not to say the French aren't good conversationalists. After all, they invented the art of conversation. And when someone has a good, scurrilous, fairly shocking story to tell, usually involving someone else, everyone is amused and the rejoinders are fast and clever. I read once that Americans, oh, and then I'd say that thing about talking about money, so you don't have to talk about sex. Um, uh, Milan Kundera and Idolo Calvino both, treas both uh, treasured lightness in their writing. I wonder if they would have esteemed it so much if they hadn't both lived in Paris. Long-winded explanations are deemed pointless and embarrassing and are abhorred. When I used to hold forth <laughs> explaining something in a professorial way, my friend Gilles Bar Barbadette would say in English, thanks teach. <laughs> in New York, I was used to drawing people out on their areas of expertise, which of course was flattering to the person being quizzed and informative to the other guests. But in general, the French resist personal disquisitions and resent pointed questions. Americans think it's polite to grill a stranger. The French think of it as an invasion and an affront. Because I was an American and after all a writer, the French would gamely answer my questions, mistaking my politeness for professional balzation, curiosity. So anyway, uh, uh, that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that terrific? <laughs> um, we have time for questions. I always plan a question because it's, <laughs> a, it's so hard to ask the first question. Isn't it? Yeah. 
Yes, sir. When you uh, did the biography of Jacques Genet, um, I presume that at that time you couldn't speak French, but did you use an interpreter? No, I could speak French by then. I, I, I started that in 87, and I had moved to France in 83, so I had four years of uh, mucking about under my belt. And, but it was difficult because Genet knew such strange people. I mean, um, he, he didn't know bourgeois intellectual writer types, uh, middle class people. He knew criminals. And, uh, and, you, and those people are hard to find. They die young. If you do find them, they won't talk. And if they do talk, they want to be paid. And if they do talk, you can't believe them. So, I mean, <laughs> it, it was kind of a, it was sort of, I would try to get three sources for every remark. And, but sometimes I had real linguistic difficulties. Like, I interviewed Genet's uh, godmother when she was 101. And she didn't speak French. She spoke the dialect of the Morvan, where she was from. And so her granddaughter had to translate it into French for me. Mm -hmm. And could you elaborate a little bit about his death, how he came to die? How he, uh, Genet came to die? Well, he, he liked to stay in uh, kind of third-class hotels. I mean, he, he, he never had a home. And he always was just moving around uh, all the time. And, and he liked that because if he was going to renew his friendships, it was up to him to renew it. Because nobody ever knew where he was, because he was always changing hotels. So uh, this time, uh, he, was, he liked to go to one particular hotel. But it was full, so uh, he checked into another hotel. And he, at night, he took nine Nimbutals to sleep, which is just ugh, huge dose. And, and he liked kind of wandering around slightly stoned. And, but anyway, he, uh, uh, he, he, there was a step leading into the bathroom in this little hotel called Jack's. And it was near the Garleon. And he uh, tripped and hit his head and died. He was uh, 76. Yeah. And then he wanted to be buried in uh, Morocco. But, you know, people write things like that down in their will, and they don't realize what a bother it is for everybody. <laughs> I, I mean, because, uh, because he, he wasn't uh, a Muslim. So, so he was taken to this town where one of his boyfriends and lived and uh, and he had to be buried in the Christian Portuguese uh, cemetery where nobody had been buried since 1930 when the Portuguese lost control of that particular part of Morocco and so uh, but he was buried there and and, and it was interesting because he um, uh, they they, uh, they put up a nice uh, stone with his names and dates and everything and then of course fans immediately stole it and so the, all that was left was some uh, cement and, and Jackie Malia who was his main heir and who had been his boyfriend and whom he had taught how to write when he was a child uh, I mean literally how to write he signed the thing Jean Genet in Genet's own handwriting and the, and the tomb looked out on the three principal sites of his it looked out on a bordello on the sea and a prison 
That was perfect. <laughs> Yes, sir. There's a story that uh, the Reagans and were sitting together in the front row while Boston was just telling jokes. No, tell them. Sounds great. And one joke was that Bob Hope said that the Statue of Liberty had AIDS. And he said, we just don't know if it came from the mouth of the Hudson or the Staten Island Ferry. <laughs> to that, the Reagans laughed uproariously, and the Mueller and Mueller were horrified. So, could you tell us a little bit about the difference in America and the Paris Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, they were both elected in 1981, I believe. And, what? Eighty uh, and Mitterrand eighty one, but anyway, they uh, they had very different attitudes because Mitterrand, for instance, was uh, uh, he had a solid gay vote behind him, and he knew that, and he was grateful to the gay community. And one of the first acts of uh, his presidency was to abolish uh, all laws. I mean, he decriminalized homosexuality. It had been decriminalized by the revolution and then Napoleon had made sure it stayed uh, decriminalized but then the, the 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 Vichy government during the Nazi years had recriminalized it because they thought it was sinful and uh, uh, and then uh, Mitterrand decriminalized it again so and he got rid of the what was called the police mondaine which was the the police force that was supposed to raid uh, gay bars and and pick up people having sex in the parks and all that. So suddenly it was completely uh, Liberty Hall in Paris, you know, you could do anything you wanted, but, uh, uh, and that, that was very, and also, I was one of the founders of the gay men's health crisis in America, and the, we were so oppressed, and we thought so small, and we felt so excluded from the rest of the world that the only thing we could think to do to raise money was to have a disco party. Whereas the, the, the counterpart to the gay men's health crisis, which is called ED, A-I-D-E-S, and uh, in France, when they started in 85, they immediately went to the Minister of Health and demanded a huge budget. But imagine if we would have done that. I mean, you know, I mean, actually, I think Reagan's uh, Minister of Health, whatever we call it, uh, what, what, the Surgeon General, what, was fairly liberal and hip. I mean, Cooper, wasn't he? Yeah. What was his name? Jeremy Cooper. Cooper, yeah. But, uh, but anyway, um, it, it was very different. Uh, kind. And the treatment for people with AIDS was, uh, I mean, I had a lover who had AIDS and who died of it, but, um, you know, he never pay, had to pay a penny. Everything was free, and, and he had constant care, nurses who would visit us at home and taxis that would take him to the hospital, all that free. I mean, it's just so different. I mean, I think they have the the best health system in the world. There was a hand over here. Yeah, I was reading a, a Paris Review interview um, that you gave. Uh, it was, I think, it was in the mid '80s. Mm -hmm. and you said at that time that I think you said that Nabokov was your favorite. Hmm. writer, and I was curious if that's changed at this point. Um, well, he certainly is right up there on the top of my hit parade. I, I mean, I, I like him, I like uh, uh, Isherwood, 
I, I like Proust, I like Colette, and lots of other people. I, I'm a judge a lot of times of literary contests, so I'm always reading, reading, reading books, and, uh, and I always fall in love with new ones. Right now, I was talking to the young man who works at the front desk about the, the Norwegian Proust, uh, Knausgaard, who's published a six-volume uh, memoir, uh, or novel, I guess it, we we call it. This young lady is Swedish, and we were talking about him today. My struggle. My struggle. My struggle. Mein Kampf. <laughs> <laughs> he took the title from Hitler. <laughs> kind of bold. <laughs> I think we have copies of that, by the way. We have copies. So. <laughs> it's a great book. So I'm, I read an interview with you and John Irving, mm -hmm. um, and how how long your friendship had been. Um, I was curious to know how did that happen. I mean, it sort of well, it's not that old a friendship. I mean, it's it's a very intense one. I mean, we we correspond with each other constantly, and uh, uh, he has a gay son, so I think he he got interested in gay people because of his son. He's a very loving father, and uh, uh, and then what happened is he was in Nashville, and they had an alternative newspaper, and he gave a. Uh, 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 an interview to that newspaper in which he said that one of his favorite writers was me. So, uh, and uh, and Patrick cut that out and sent it to me, and and so because she lives in Nashville, and uh, and so then I started corresponding with him, and uh, and you know I, I I think he's so such a wonderful person, so warm and so such a original man. I, it was it was interesting to read because I, for some reason, I was thinking the world according to Garp, right? I mean, yeah. I wrote the world according to Garp, and and you got sort of talking, and, and um, I know that he had a gay son, and how that relationship blossomed with, between the both of you. you know, yeah, so. yeah. Well, my my partner Michael and I, we went to see a play given by his son recently, and we're very involved with them. And he just sent me a picture of himself dancing with some woman. He couldn't remember who, uh, and the Reagans were dancing right next to him. Uh, 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 Reagan and, and Nancy were. It, it was a funny photo. <laughs> yeah. Janae's mother. Uh, the, uh, a godmother. She was from the Morvan, which is uh, sort of like. La France Profonde, it's like Kentucky would be for America or something. You know, I mean, it, it's really in the center of the country. It's a region that is very poor, even today, and uh, there are no big cities around there. And the 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 railroad didn't come there till about like 1900, maybe 50 years after it went everyplace else in France, because the ground is granite, and it's very hard to, to build... Uh, Anyway, uh, the people there are famous from Roman times for being uh, wet nurses. And it used to be that if you were a rich bourgeois family in Paris and you had a child, you obviously didn't want to nurse it yourself, so if you were rich. So you had a nice peasant girl come from the Morvan who had just recently had a baby, and she gave her baby to other people to take care of, and then she took care of her. Anyway, the, the, but they've been doing that since ancient Roman times. And uh, it was 
I, I, I know this little bit about it because that's where Sinead was raised, so I, I, I had to investigate all that for my, for my biography. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you all very much. Oh, yeah, one more. Yeah. Well, when I started off writing uh, Like a Boys on Story in 1982, at that point, um, you're all too young to remember that, but uh, but uh, nobody's like me didn't write uh, memoirs. Uh, I mean, you had to have won the Battle of Iwo Jima or invented uh, the safety pin or something to to you know to be so important as to write. A, now everybody who's been raped by their father or what everybody writes a memoir now, but uh, it, they didn't used to. And, uh, and so when I started, there was no question of writing a memoir. But then uh, uh, history changed, and but I do feel that uh, you have a different contract with the reader that in a memoir you should tell the truth and nothing but the truth and I hate that phrase uh, creative nonfiction you know because that sounds like a, a synonym for lying <laughs> uh, but I, I, I think that with the uh, with the novel you can your contract with the reader is very different because you're saying this is a novel and it's made up and it may be based on your life but you can change the chronology you can make three lovers into one you can you can, you know, I mean, like, for instance, Janae would, uh, people think that his books are, are memoirs, but they're not, they're novels. So that, for instance, in the Thief's, Thief's Journal, I think he says that he, uh, he was desperately poor in Spain for two years. In fact, I found that he was only there two months. But I think that if he had said two months, I mean, he was there in the midst of the worst depression ever. You, you would struggle all day long to get an onion to eat. That would be your meal. I mean, it, it was so painful, I think, his poverty, that if he'd said two months, it would have sounded trivial. So two years really was the moral or psychological equivalent of what he went through. But I mean, you couldn't say that in a real memoir, but you could say that in a novel, you know. Yeah. Just have one more. Uh, how did you ever manage to uh, get seduced into, uh, not get seduced into writing a biography of Truman Capote, for example? Did you ever meet him? I did meet him, and I've written essays, uh, a rather long essay about him. Uh, uh, I can't remember what book that's in, but anyway, uh, it's in some book of essays. And uh, uh, I only met him once, and he was completely stoned. And he kept leaving the room to do more cocaine, and uh, you know, and he. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do think that Gerald Clark's biography of him is one of the best biographies that I've ever read. It reads like a novel. It's so, so clever and rich. It's a beautiful book. Thank you. Thank you. 
You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.